1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 83. Before we get started this week, I would like to thank Brian, Thomas, Matthew, and Jill for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to get access to special Patreon-only episodes. Last episode, we discussed the planning and then the start of the Rising in Dublin on Easter week, 1916. When the Rising started, less than half of the men who had been planned for mobilized to participate, and this caused the plan to, essentially, go out the window. This episode, we will look at what happened once the initial shock of the Rising wore off. There will be a small amount of initial fighting that will happen, but the situation settles down pretty quickly. Once it does, the British strategy of surrounding and slowly closing in on the scattered rebel positions will begin in earnest. This will result in the Rising ending less than a week after it started. We will then continue by looking at what happened to all of the leaders and participants of the Rising after the surrender. At the end of the episode, we will discuss just briefly the position of the Rising in Irish culture, leading up to the very turbulent middle decades of the 20th century. There will also be a brief section on the response to the Rising by the Irish soldiers at the front, There were thousands of Irishmen, both nationalists and unionists, on the Western Front in early 1916, many preparing for the upcoming battle on the Somme. I find their reaction to the Rising interesting, especially in terms of how homogenous they were between the two groups of soldiers, even though they had very different viewpoints. We begin our story where we left off last time, with the groups of rebels spread out around the city, but now, the British are coming. For the first and second day of the Rising, there was not a ton of fighting. The British units in both Dublin and in other areas of Ireland rapidly moved into the city, but they chose not to fully engage with the rebels, but instead just to garrison a number of buildings to protect them from being taken, just in case that's what the rebels had in mind. Many of these were strategically important, like Dublin Castle, Trinity College, or the Shelburne Hotel. There were also areas like the army barracks, train depots, and port facilities that were not under immediate threat, but would be required for the eventual British counterstroke. Throughout all of Tuesday, reinforcements continued to pour in from all over Ireland, from Carra to Belfast, to name just two of the locations. They came from everywhere. These troops were also able to bring in four field guns that were set up at Trinity College. These guns, when fired, apparently broke all of the glass in the area, which makes sense. They are cannons, after all. Serious reinforcements began to arrive from England at mid-morning on Wednesday, and this is when the heaviest fighting of the entire Rising would take place. The main skirmishing at this time was between the rebels around Mount Street and the British troops marching up from the docks on north Road. There was heavy fighting at this point with the British suffering 200 casualties from the fire of only 17 rebels. This could have been much worse for the British if the rebel commanders would have had a better grasp on what was happening. Overall, the rebels had been given orders to hold their positions and the surrounding areas, and in this instance, they followed that order almost too far. Instead of using their ability to move around in the early fighting to interdict British movements, they instead kept most of their strength in their garrisons, which were mostly out of action. The skirmish on Northumberland Road is a perfect example of this. If the commander had reinforced these 17 men that were raining down hell on the British, who knows how long they would have been able to hold back the British troops and really win a real victory. This refusal to reinforce good positions when they presented themselves would seal the fate of many situations which could have worked out more in the rebels' favor than they did. Another factor that comes into play, and especially during the early fighting, was that the rebel commanders almost across the board gave the British way too much credit. They always believed that the British knew more than they did, had more men than they did, and were far superior in fighting skill and experience. This was generally not the case, though, especially for the first half of the week. The British troops and officers that were being used at this point generally had even less experience than the volunteers and the members of the Irish citizen army when it came to fighting. Most had never fired a shot in anger. These were either garrison troops from around Ireland or green conscripts from Britain, not fresh troops from a tour on the western front. The commanders were just as inexperienced as the men, and their general tactic was to just keep throwing men at objectives until they were taken. I mean, this isn't that much different than what happened early in the war. Just here, it usually worked. This is what would happen in on Northern Berlin Road, and it would be why the British suffered so many casualties. Unfortunately for the rebels, this was one of the few opportunities that they would have to really put the hammer down on the British, and they squandered it. After this encounter, the British would be able to enact their tactics for the rest of the week, cordoning off the rebels into their groups, and then slowly squeezing. From here on out, Most of the fighting, what little there was, would be long-range sniping duels instead of massed assaults. This resulted in a battlefield that was often pretty quiet, with the rebels told not to waste ammunition on speculative shooting, and the British just wanting to keep the various groups of rebels in their buildings. This is of course not what the rebels expected. They were ready for a fight on Monday. And when it did not happen, when they did not experience instant and glorious death at the hands of the British bayonets, there were other problems that began to emerge. The first problem was food. As in any city, on any given day, there's only so much food in the city center. When the Rising started, all shipments of food into the city were halted by the British and the rebels, and all of the civilians in the area had to survive on what was present on Monday. This would be problematic in any city but it was especially bad in the center of Dublin due to how poor the areas were that the rebels had occupied. The people in these areas were not flush with money, and therefore their food stocks were, on average, much lower than richer areas of the city would have been. Food was such an issue so quickly in the Rising that rebels would have to use their guns to repel a mob of people who were trying to get bread from the bakery that the rebels had occupied, and this was early in the week, just the first few days. Some of the rebels were fortunate to be based in bakeries and other buildings where food was available, but even these cornucopias began to run low as the week wore on. One group was even in a candy shop, and while I'm sure it was great in the beginning, sugar can only keep men going so far. The problem with food shortages was not just limited to the area directly under the control of the rebels, also the areas around it. In some areas, bakeries sort of came together with their community to give out free bread to try and stave off the suffering of the civilians. Fortunately for the people in trouble, the British would come in and, the, and commandeer any foodstuffs that were available and distribute it to those in need, and they would also ship in a ton of food to hand out. This was a lifesaver for a lot of people. Food was not the only problem for the rebels, and they also found themselves facing the same problem that men at the front did trying to get some sleep. Exhaustion would play a big role in the final days of the fighting, and there was no situation in which the rebels could easily rotate men off the front line to get any rest. This problem was exacerbated when the artillery bombardments would start up on Wednesday and run for the rest of the week. What you see is a lot of first-hand accounts of rebels spend most of the last three days of what they record talking about how hungry and tired they are, and not some grand ideal of Irish nationalism. The shelling of the rebel positions came from two different sources. The first was the guns at Trinity College, that I mentioned earlier, and the other was a ship that was brought into the area, the Helga, which used its guns to add to the carnage. These guns would target various rebel positions around the city until Thursday, at which point they began to focus their fire on the general post office and the surrounding buildings. On Thursday night, incendiary shells were dropped both on the GPO and on the rest of Sackville Street, which resulted in a veritable firestorm. One soldier would record that when the fire hit an oil works, quote, Suddenly, some oil works near Abbey Street, is singed by the conflagration, and immediately a solid sheet of blinding, death-white flame rushes hundreds of feet into the air with a thunderous explosion that shakes the walls. End quote. This attack was devastating to rebel morale. As with any artillery fire during the war, many rebels recorded feeling completely helpless at this stage of the fighting. They were trapped in their little zones with no possible recourse against the artillery shells that were falling around them. One of the more remarkable things that was happening at this point was that there were still normal Dublin services like the fire brigades and ambulances that continued to run through most of the fighting. These groups were also assisted by just normal civilians who put their lives on the line to try and help people. This included the park keeper at St. Stephen's Green, who benefited from an agreed-upon ceasefire in the area that allowed him to perform one of his duties, Quote, the most unusual example of cooperation between both sides was the twice-daily ceasefire at St. Stephen's Green that allowed the park keeper to venture out to feed the ducks. Quote. Early in the morning on Friday, the British brought a new commander onto the scene in Dublin, and this man was Major General Sir John Maxwell. Maxwell had been in Egypt since 1914 and was made the military governor of Ireland when he arrived. This action essentially swept aside the normal civilian leadership. Maxwell thought that Lowe had done a good job up to this point, and completely agreed with his tactical decisions. He did add two new items into the mix in Dublin, though, and the first was that there would only be unconditional surrender. He made that very clear to everyone, including eventually the rebels. Surrender was only unconditional. The second decision that he made, as per his orders from London, was that anything up to and including the complete destruction of Dublin was considered acceptable as long as it resulted in the end of the rising. This last bit was a problem for the rebels, who had counted on the British being at least a little hesitant to perpetuate wholesale destruction on the city. The belief that the British would be hesitant to do this was part of the reason that the city was chosen in the first place, and part of the reason that specific areas around Dublin were occupied. With wholesale destruction of Dublin now on the table and endless artillery hitting the rebel positions, the week rolled on to Friday, which would mark the beginning of the end of the rising. For the rebels, Thursday night and into Friday morning had been a very rough 12 hours, especially those in and around the GPO. Sackville Street was still mostly on fire, and the fire was rapidly approaching the GPO. On Friday, a rebel in the command center would record that, quote, "...the flames from the Imperial Hotel and from Hoyt's drug and oil stores on the corner of Sackville Place were so fierce that they almost touched the walls of the GPO, and we could feel the heat of them." On Friday at around noon, the GPO would come under heavy fire once again, and this time, the building would catch fire quite quickly. There was a valiant attempt to contain the flames, but in the end, it proved impossible. After it was clear that the fire was spreading, without any chance of quelling the flames, Pierce would stand on a table to make his address to all those who were present to announce that they were abandoning the building. As part of this speech, he would say, The gallantry of the soldiers of Irish freedom who have been during the past four days been riding with fire, the most glorious chapter in the later history of Ireland, end quote. Speeches are all fine and dandy to get men's spirits up. But now there was the actual act of getting out of the GPO, and this proved harder than they had hoped. The first attempt was to move out onto Moore Street, and 40 men were sent for this purpose. They were sort of sent to clear the way so that everybody else could go out but they rapidly came under just a barrage of British fire and had to retreat. The next attempt was made to go out of the building through the Henry Street entrance. This would end up being successful, and the evacuation would begin at 8 p.m. It is difficult to determine if the evacuation of the building was an orderly event or if it was a mad dash for the rebels involved. Regardless, the rebels found themselves in a small and narrow lane, this is why this was the second choice for the way of evacuation, and it was covered by British soldiers who instantly began to lay down fire. The rebels were forced to take the first shelter that they could find, and they ended up being in the tenement houses on Moore Street. Once inside, they began the process of burrowing through the walls to continue on their path to what they hoped was safety. Around this time, discipline in the headquarters company began to deteriorate. Some men just sort of melted away into the civilians, and others stopped participating at all. One rebel would say that at this point, quote, there was no cohesion. Nobody seemed to be in charge once we left the post office. It was every man for himself. As the rebels entered the tenement houses, they came face to face with the suffering that they were putting on the people of Dublin. For the most part, the rebels had been segregated from the general population up to this point, but now that they could see that nobody had any food and there were large numbers of wounded. The artillery fire had been indiscriminate in its destruction, and the citizens of Dublin were paying for it. Seeing that what was happening around them did nothing to help the morale of the tired and hungry rebels. One thing that we have not discussed so far is how the Rising went in other parts of Ireland. Generally, the entire focus has has been, both in these episodes and in histories that I've read at large, on the actions in Dublin, and little is said about the rising elsewhere. In the rest of the country, there were a decently large number of volunteers who mobilized on Easter Sunday and Easter Monday. Throughout the next week, some of these units would just wander around the countryside without accomplishing very much. Here and there, they would skirmish with local authorities, maybe even some British troops in the area, but there was no real effort to coordinate the various groups. The fact was that they were not prepared and were not ordered to do anything, and this left each unit to answer for themselves what they should be doing. Should they endeavor to march to Dublin? It was a possibility for some of the closer ones. Should they find a way to attack local government buildings in the area and spread chaos? There was probably some sort of value in this, I guess. Or should they just hang out and wait for orders? This was the easiest, and that's what a lot of them did. The problem was that nobody knew the correct answers to any of these questions. It was a shame, really, for the Rising as a whole, that they were not able to better leverage the rural units of volunteers. The secrecy of the military council, rarely willing to bring an outsider into their confidence, was one thing that can be blamed. But of course, any impact that the Rising could have had was dulled by McNeil's order that caused, if anything, more confusion in the countryside than in Dublin itself, where Pierce and the other leaders... Held much more sway with the local unit commanders.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.
1: I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com, or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. So now it's time to talk about how the rising The most dramatic of the surrenders in the city was undoubtedly that of the headquarters battalion. So that is the one that we will focus our story on. Friday was a day of various speeches and orders given by leaders of the rising from the area on Moore Street they were designed to try and keep morale up with the men in a very challenging situation here is a piece of one given by connolly quote, "courage boys we are winning for the first time in 700 years the flag of free ireland floats triumphantly in dublin city" End quote. and here's another piece from pierce quote, we are completing arrangements for the final defense of headquarters and are determined to hold it while the building's last. If we accomplish no more than what we have accomplished, I am satisfied that we have saved Ireland's honor." End quote. No matter how positive or defiant these speeches were, they could not completely ignore the current situation. And by Saturday that situation was bleak. Captain Brennan Whitmore, present for all of the speeches and until the surrender, would say that quote, we were simply in a ring of steel from which there was only two avenues of escape death or surrender. End quote. While another rebel would describe how some men dealt with the current very stressful situation quote, Most of the men by this time were utterly tired, exhausted, and apparently despondent. A large number in the more or less darkened rooms were saying their rosaries. Among the leadership, serious discussions were now circulating about what should be done. They could not just sit in their current location without food and supplies. There was some discussion about escaping outside the city to try and join with the rebel units from the countryside, but while a great idea, it ignored the difficulty of getting there. Some of the men wanted to do a bayonet charge to go out in a blaze of glory, but the situation on the street was at a point where they would probably have not got more than a few steps. Eventually, even the leadership was forced into the realization that surrender was the only option. At 12.45 on Saturday, Elizabeth O'Farrell approached the British under a white flag. O'Farrell informed the local commanders that that the rebels wanted to surrender, and wished to discuss terms, to which of course the answer was, the only terms available were unconditional. After some back and forth to try and improve the terms available, At 3.30pm, Pierce and his men officially surrendered. After this decision was made, he would write an order that would be given to other groups of rebels, and part of this order was to tell them, quote, to lay down arms to prevent the further slaughter of Dublin's citizens, and the hope of saving the lives of our followers now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, end quote. The usual reason given by the leadership for their surrender was to save the lives of the normal men under their command, and to ease the suffering of the people of Dublin, as mentioned above. It was widely believed that when this was all over, even though the leaders had harsh punishments ahead of them, maybe even death, the rank-and-file rebel would face much lower sentences, and this would prove to be true. Even with all of these reasons, there were still some men who wanted to continue to fight, to carry on to the end even if it meant mutinying against their officers. It was Sean McDermott, one of the original members of the military council, that planned the rising right from the beginning, that would bring everyone back on board the decision to surrender. While the exact text of his speech does not survive, one rebel that heard it would say that, quote, "...he suggested that we take a long look at the dense civilians laying in the street outside our windows." He asked us to imagine how many more of them would be lying there if we fought on. While this got the more adventurous of the rebels back in order, there were some that were simply too exhausted to carry their way. One of them was John McGolaghy, who was actually asleep when all of these discussions about surrendering were happening. Quote, When I awoke, the rising was over, and I hadn't fired a shot. After the order to surrender was given, the rebels formed up into units and marched out of their positions, carrying a white flag. The Irish Republic, declared in a proclamation at the GPO on Monday, was over just six days later. Over the course of the next 24 hours, garrisons all around the city surrendered. It took some time to get the orders around and to get them to believe that Pierce would have ordered the surrender, but in the end, most units came peacefully. Some groups were angry at having to surrender, like those to the north of the four courts where most of the actual fighting had taken place. They had done quite well. Other groups were just confused because they'd seen almost no fighting at all and had no knowledge of what was happening elsewhere. Regardless of what they thought of the surrender, eventually all of the garrisons agreed to it, and they took it as a point of pride that they maintained military discipline throughout the process with almost all units sticking together and marching to surrender in orderly units. Virgo McGarry would say in his history that, For the military council, one of the objectives of the rising had been to restore dignity to the separatist movement and the nation by making a courageous and disciplined stand in the face of impossible odds. In terms of its impact on public opinion, the rebels' manly acceptance of defeat and punishment carefully choreographed by their leaders, exerted a greater emotional charge than the six days of scrappy fighting that preceded it. The overall numbers of wounded and killed during the Rising on all sides seemed tiny compared to the other events that were occurring in 1916. The British suffered 600 casualties with 143 killed, while the rebels suffered just 66 killed and an unknown number wounded. The tragic part of the death toll comes when we start looking at civilians. During the week, there were 260 civilians killed, more than both sides combined, and over 2,200 civilians wounded, making them the vast majority of the casualties. In total, a little under 3,500 men and women would end up surrendering to British authorities. With the rising over, the biggest problem for the British was where to put all of these prisoners. Eventually, they would all just be crammed in anywhere that they would fit, and generally accommodations were not exactly rated five stars. Just to close out the story of the role of women in the fighting, many of them had to insist on their combatant status, since most of the British officers believed that they must have been abducted or something by the rebels and forced into fighting. In fact, only five women would eventually be sent to Britain with the other prisoners, while the rest were released on the grounds that they had been misled into joining the rebellion, which was obviously not true. General Maxwell would be quoted as saying that he was happy to get rid of, quote, all of those silly girls. Most of the prisoners, both male and female, would be quickly released, with 1,000 leaving custody during the next two weeks. The reason that so many were released so quickly was that the British had the problem of trying to prove which rebels had actively participated in the fighting. This was essentially impossible in most cases, but unless it could be proven that they themselves had fired shots against the British troops, there was really nothing to convict them of. That 1,000 unit number also includes a good number of civilians that had gotten swept up in the sweeps of Dublin to try and round up all the rebels. There were some 2,500 prisoners left that were sent to Britain. While for the most part, the prisoners were treated well, for the leaders of the Rising, it was a different story. Between May 3rd and May 12th, 14 of the most prominent rebel leaders were executed. The trials were held in secret to try and limit the ability of the rebels to spread their message, but while they waited, they were able to write a veritable stream of letters and statements to the outside world. Pierce would write at this time that, quote, You cannot strike us down now. We shall rise again and renew the fight. You cannot reconquer Ireland. You cannot extinguish the Irish passion for freedom. If our deed has not been sufficient to win freedom, then our children will win it by a better deed. The first three to be executed were Pierce, Tom Clark, and Thomas McDonough, who were all three executed on May the 3rd. Executions would continue at this pace for a few days, until May the 9th. There are very few accounts of the actual executions, and they were kept secret for obvious reasons, but they definitely happened. When the news started to get back to London about these executions, there was serious concern that such harsh treatment would have devastating effects when trying to reconcile with the Irish nation, which, oh by the way, they would... Asquith himself would arrive in Dublin on May the 12th to try and make sure that no more executions were carried out. Unfortunately, in the hearts and minds of many in Ireland, the damage had already been done. The executions and their secrecy played a huge role in transforming the rising and the men who took part in it into something that the majority of Ireland identified with, and they became sympathetic to the men involved, something that was not necessarily true during the rising itself or in the immediate aftermath. Another bit of news that did the British no favors in Ireland were all of the rumors circulating about atrocities committed against civilians by the British troops during the fighting. The most serious of these was the killing of 15 men on North King Street, all of which were believed to be rebels without any real evidence. The men who participated in the killings were not punished, First of all, because there was no record of exactly who had participated, but also because General Maxwell believed that it had been simply too hard to distinguish rebels from civilians. He would say, quote, These rebels wore no uniform, and the men who was shooting at a soldier one minute might, for all he knew, be walking quietly beside him in the streets at another. Nearly everything had to be left to the troops on the spot, End quote. The deaths of civilians were tragic, both from specific incidents and from the shelling of various areas inside Dublin. However, some blame, while most of it can be placed on the British themselves, must also be placed on the rebels. They knew the danger that they were putting the citizens of Dublin in, and they chose that it was worth the risk. And therefore, while the killing of innocent civilians is always a tragedy, the blame cannot strictly be placed on the British." One of the facets of the Rising that I found it difficult to find much information about, but which interested me greatly, was the larger role that it played in the war and how it was received by the thousands of Irishmen at the front in spring 1916. After spending a lot of time poking around the internet trying to find a few good sources on it, I ended up picking up a book called Facing Armageddon, The First World War Experience by Hugh Cecil. It's just a collection of essays, but it included one by Jane Leonard, entitled The Reaction of Irish Officers in the British Army to the Easter Rising of 1916, which is a very obvious title, which sometimes I greatly appreciate. This information is taken from that source. There were, of course, very different feelings between the Unionists and the Nationalists in their respective divisions, and among the officers, Unionism was far more prevalent, And for this reason, the reaction among this group was not that dissimilar from the reaction of normal British officers. The nationalists, on the other hand, present a much more interesting reaction once they received the information of what was happening in Dublin. It took several weeks for any information about the Rising to get to the men in the trenches, and it was initially mistaken as a simple worker strike or some other small disturbance, nothing major, it was starting to happen as the war wore on. As more information filtered out to the front, the overwhelming feeling among the men in the Irish divisions was a feeling of disappointment, bordering on betrayal. While the rebels were fighting for a cause that the nationalist soldiers believed in as well, they did not like that it was happening while a war was on. It did not help that some units received the news while they were in the trenches actively fighting and dying. In fact, some troops of the 16th Irish Division were coming off the line after being hit by a devastating gas attack. Not the best time to get news that something crazy was happening back home. While the initial shock to the troops was powerful, it would also have effects on the soldiers that would survive the war and would later return when they had to then go back home. By the time many returned in 1918 or 1919, their country had drastically shifted its feelings towards home rule and independence. Having spent time fighting with and for the enemies of the rising, many Irishmen did not know what kind of reception they would receive when they returned to their homes. Eugene Sheehy would say, quote, As the tide of Irish public opinion gradually changed and hostility to England grew, we did not know where we stood or where our duty lay. As I mentioned a few times, the rising would have lasting effects on Ireland. And this was very true, and it would have very long-lasting effects. After the rising, and the British reaction to it, across the board in Irish society, many people moved from the moderate positions to more radical beliefs on nationalism and its place in Irish society. This would also be the time that Sinn Féin, soon the standard-bearer for the nationalist movement, would grow in importance and power. From 1916 on out, All of the various groups of Irish radicals, from the War of Independence volunteers, to the Anti-Treaty IRA, to the Provisional IRA of the Troubles, would all claim to be carrying on the spirit and cause of the Rising, and the men who had laid down their lives for Ireland. They used the declaration of martial law during the Rising, and the suppression of the opposition after, as their reason for their continued anger and violence. Many politicians who took part in the rising itself would be sure to trumpet it loudly in the years after, as it was a sure way to gain support. It is likely that had the rising not happened, a much smoother and less violent course would have been found for Ireland in the decades after the war, and the trend towards moderate mediation between Dublin and Ulster and London would have been continued. However, it of course did not play out that way. On the other side, it is impossible to talk about 20th century Ireland without discussing both parts of the island. The Protestant Unionists would point to their contribution during the war as a reason that they should be allowed to stay in the United Kingdom. This feeling and the continued popularity of Unionism in Britain would create the situation of the two Ireland's that survives to this day. I've even seen the feelings in Ulster compared to those in Australia and New Zealand after the war, drawing on their collective experiences to come together as a country, or as a unit of a country, that wanted to stay as part of it. Regardless of what would or would not have happened had the Rising not occurred, it's but one big bump on the long story of Irish history and the very rocky story of 20th century Irish history. And I encourage everyone to go out and do some research on the country and its history. It's just as fascinating as any other, and probably not well known. I hope you will also join me next episode, as we begin to discuss what might be the second most impactful offensive of 1916 after Verdun. And no, I'm not talking about the Somme, but instead the offensive in the east, as the Russians once again find a way to attack under the command of General Brusilov.